0: Reported live from Hong Kong and Toronto. This is the PR and Law Podcast. The PR and Law Podcast. Turn it up. Turn it up. With your hosts, Cam McMurchy and and Christie.
1: Welcome to episode number 22 of the PR and Law Podcast. I'm your host, Cam McMurchy, along with you and Christie. Hello, Cameron. Ewan is an employment lawyer and partner at Duntroon LLP in Toronto, Canada, and his firm's online at duntroonllp.law. I'm a PR guy based in Hong Kong and publisher of the Digital Bits PR and Communications Newsletter at DigitalBitsPR.com. If you enjoy the podcast, please tell a friend and you can follow us on social media, LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And the account name is PR Law Podcast, all one word, PR Law Podcast. Uh, And you can also subscribe to our YouTube channel or our new SoundCloud channel. So both of those are available. uh, And we're... We're happy to take your questions as well. So just post those on social media with the hashtag PR law Pod, and we can get to those in a future show as well. Ewan, what is happening in Toronto?
2: Well, it's Labor Day weekend here, Cameron, and in the United States. So, uh, you know, shout out to all the workers here and, and in America. Um, enjoying the long weekend. Of course, it also marks, as you know, Cam, from... Uh, From a long, long time ago when you still lived in this part of the world that, you know, Labor Day weekend sort of marks the unofficial Mm -hmm. end of summer, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, people going back to school, people going back to work. So it's, uh, you know, it's a bit of a wind down, you know,
1: you know, what I did not know until I moved to Asia is that Labor Day is celebrated in May everywhere in the world, except for the U.S. and Canada. Um, which no, is, which is, is yeah. there? I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, yeah, I didn't know that either. Cause again, growing up in North America, you just sort of assume this is the way it is, but, but actually like, like, uh, international workers day, right? Like where it was born out of was actually May 1st. It's a May 1st holiday. So actually I like, I'm looking at a map of the world right now that celebrates it May 1st. It's almost the whole world. <laughs> and then Canada and North America in September. That's, we have to be special. Yeah. I, 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 I kind of wonder why that is but I should probably have looked at that before we did this show, but it just came (laughs) up. Uh, Yeah. But it is interesting though, because uh, yeah, it is just uh, all that stuff's taken for granted until someone else tells you otherwise.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think, I mean, I know a little bit about it, but I I think the, you know, the first, I know the first labor day in the U S was sort of in like the late 1880s. um, So that's sort of, how long or how far it goes back? I don't know about any of the the, the May Days in um, in Europe and elsewhere. Mm-hmm. What their what their sort of historical context is, but um, yeah, it's it's been around. It's been around for for some
1: time for sure. How's the COVID stuff there too? Yeah. You know,
2: our numbers are creeping up again. They've been creeping up steadily for about the last 10 days. Um, but you know, I mean, again, what do you, I don't know what people expect at this point, right? We're, we're trying to gradually reopen. Um, you know, I think, Tuesday is going to be a big, big day because, mm-hmm. again, it's sort of Labor Day weekend. This is kind of it. We're, we're going into the the unofficial end of summer. A lot of people who are taking um, summer vacation are going back to work on Tuesday. Students will be going back to work shortly. Normally, they'd be going back on Tuesday, but all the public schools are starting back uh, a week late. And there's a whole that's a whole other show. So I won't even go there. Um, but yeah, I mean, presumably we're going to see a further spike in, in the coming weeks because
1: more and more people are going back and, and the economy continues to reopen. I don't think those things have to happen together, though. I mean, the idea is originally was to shut down as m- much as we could to kill off as much of the virus as we could and then reopen, but reopen in a way that's like we've learned a lot since January. So like, there are parts of the world that are reopening, reopening that are not seeing that, that increase uh, in cases um, just because hopefully we can sort of you know change our behavior uh, as a result of that. Um, yeah, yep. well, I mean, you know, and we're not talking cam sort
2: of astronomical jumps in the numbers. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've kind of gone to hundred and then I just want to, you know, sort of increments, uh, 100, 110. And then I think we were up to about 160 new cases. And that's, you know, in the entire province of Ontario. So, you know, we're not we're not sort of jumping into the thousands um, mm. by day. And, you know, and, and and hopefully and I think the province and, you know, and the country as a whole has done a really, really great job um, at keeping the numbers down and locking down when they should have locked down. And, you know, there's going to be a bit of a, a bit of a jump, a bit of a blip as we sort of reopen. I, I think that's to be expected. Um,
1: people you know, still have to be careful though. Like I, I worry, it seems like a lot of people think it's either over or doesn't apply to them or like the worst part of it is already in the past when I, people still need to be careful. You know, it's still, it's still a risk. It's, it's still something you definitely don't want to catch. That's for sure. Yeah, well, and,
2: you know, what has been really interesting. A lot of the articles have been talking about this, and this is particularly a North American specific issue. We're moving into the fall and that means we're moving into cooler weather. And, you know, everyone expects to see a jump in in confirmed cases come fall because more and more people are going to be moving inside. Right. Um, you know, the the summertime, we've had a lot of people outdoors. We know transmission. Um, it's more difficult to transmit outdoors than it is inside. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we're 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 going to see a jump as the as the weather cools down here.
1: Yeah. And the, the last thing on this is um, it does take a couple of weeks. So you're talking about people out and about over the Labor Day holiday. Like we won't see the spike Tuesday. But two weeks from now, we could see a big spike. Um, that's sort of been the been the practice when something's happened. Even the protests in the U.S. when they first broke out, it was two weeks later that the numbers really start going up a lot, um, because there is that sort of incubation period there um, for for this sort of thing. So, yeah, we'll we'll, we'll see what happens. I, the other thing I just wanted to touch on here is is the the protests. I know obviously there's protests in the U.S. that are ongoing. I, I've seen some videos from Portland that are just kind of shocking, um, but they've also returned here in Hong Kong. I mean, obviously. People are aware there were protests here last year, a big pro-democracy movement. Uh, The the national security law introduced here has obviously uh, put a damper on a lot of that. Um, But today, uh, and we're recording this on Sunday, September 6th, uh, today was to be our election day. I mean, we do have a legislature, and today was the day when we're supposed to go to the polls and, and elect a new slate of representatives. Um, but uh, you know, a month ago or so, uh, China announced that the election would be postponed. I know we mentioned that on the show, uh, by one year, I mean, which is a big deal, uh, to any yeah, sort of it's huge. democratic, uh, movement like that. Uh, so there were a lot of protesters out today and I can see almost 300 people arrested already. We got pepper spray, pepper balls. They're starting to fire, um, a lot of, a lot of, uh, you know, some of the footage just shocks me because, I mean, you've been to Hong Kong, like there's some young girls and guys like school age that are tackled to the ground. <laughs> you know, they're wearing backpacks and shorts. I mean, they don't look like anarchists or anything like that. But, um, yeah, the, 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 the shift has happened here. It's, uh, it's becoming a lot more of a police state. I, I don't want to go so far as to say that's the case, but it's definitely heading down that path.
2: Well, I mean, what, you know, what is the volume of of numbers that you have out protesting, Cam? I mean, is it anything
1: like the sort of numbers we were seeing before? It depends what you mean by before. I mean, because there are marches in Hong Kong, right? That's the most traditional way. And um, I mean, before the extradition law, they had more than 2 million people on a march, which was 37% of the population here, which is remarkable. Um, But the protests that sort of roamed around Many thousand people were doing that, and I think today there's probably a couple of thousand people out there. Like it's still, this is a different kind of protest, right? Like everybody goes out for marches because they're they're safe, they're not violent, they're they're pretty straightforward. But when you start getting into confrontations with police officers, obviously the numbers drop off a lot. Um, but there's still a lot of, I still think there's widespread support, though. I mean, that was one thing that that Beijing was concerned about was, you know, there's this violent behavior here, uh, and and the rank and file. society in Hong Kong basically supports it, (laughs) which is, which is pretty crazy because we can see in the U S it's kind of the opposite. It's very divisive there. Yeah.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Very, very different perspectives and approaches to the protests.
1: Yeah. And it is, yeah, it's, it's hard. I mean, Yeah, I'm not going to go go too far into it, but I I will say that I think there is going to be more unrest here. It looks like it's going down that path because at the end of the day, the problems are not solved. You know, we we still have a housing crisis. We still don't have democracy here. We still have a Beijing appointed chief executive, all of these things. So uh, this could go on for a very, very long time.
0: Continue the debate with us on social media. Join us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at PR Law Podcast. All one word. PRLAW Podcast. Send us your questions now by email to us at PRLawPodcast.com. That's all one word. Ask us at PRLawPodcast.com or on social media with the hashtag PRLawPod. That's hashtag PRLAWPod.
1: All right, Ewan, what you got cooking today?
2: Yeah, I wanted to talk about workplace culture, Cam. You know, mm. this idea of of fit. And it's a term that comes up a lot uh, in a law firm context, particularly every year as sort of larger firms are looking to hire their, their pool of articling students. And, uh, you know, students are always sort of asking questions about fit. Is this firm the right fit for me? And it's sort of this amorphous term um, that does have some meaning and some some significance in any workplace. And I I was sort of keenly aware of this as I was going through an article um, that I saw earlier this weekend in the Globe and Mail. It was an interview with Reed Hastings, Mm -hmm. Netflix CEO. Yep.
1: Yep. He was in Davos. And, I was at a talk of his there. Pardon me. I was. He was in Davos, so I, I was at a talk with him in Davos.
2: Oh, okay. Yeah. So you've you've seen him speak. Well, yeah. I, I'm, yeah. I'm curious to get your get your take on that. Then uh, the the interview was sort of promoting his new book, um, which he he sort of co wrote with Professor Aaron Meyer about the workplace culture at. And Netflix. And this was really, really fascinating to me from, from an employment law perspective. So, you know, I, I think everybody's pretty familiar with Netflix at this point. I don't think we need to give much of a backdrop in, you know, in case you've been living under a rock for the last few years, you know, they're that little video streaming platform. That's got about a 193 million global subscribers, uh, interestingly, 26 million of which were added just in the final half of um, or the first half of 2020. Mm-hmm. I, I guess, you know, people clearly have had some time on their hands, mm-hmm. uh, given everything else that's been going on. Um, so and he sort of he speaks at length about the workplace culture. And I wanted to just sort of touch on some of the highlights um, of Netflix. I didn't know about this. Cam, perhaps you've heard some things. about how. Yeah. How uh, workplace culture functions internally, but this was, this was certainly news to me. So, you know, things such as managers are encouraged to use a, what's called, called the quote unquote keeper test to fire anyone that they would not fight hard to keep. If that person said that they were leaving, mm-hmm. uh, Netflix encourages employees to take calls from recruiters and to go on interviews uh, that way that the com- the company knows, what those people are worth on the job market and can, you know, pay them top dollar to keep them. Of course, on the other hand, managers are sort of expected to let go those employees who aren't top performers. And, you know, there's sort of this assumption that, you know, this is one of the quotes, mediocrity is infectious and can drag teams down. Um, So true employees, Yeah, well, employees are expected to give constant feedback and receive constant feedback from from their colleagues. And that's an integral part of the culture as well. Uh, And also this idea of removal of controls is a key feature. So, you know, employees are in charge of how much vacation um, they take and and also for sort of major decisions on behalf of the company. So yeah, Kim, I'm not sure uh, how familiar you are with this, but this is, you know, this is a really, really important thing when we're sort of looking at, at companies and as an employee, when you're considering where to accept a position, or if you're an employer and you're looking to attract top talent, um, you know, this notion of fit and workplace culture is really, really, really important.
1: Yeah. And I actually find it to be a very fascinating subject, in fact, because oftentimes a company, wants to build a certain culture which is hard to do from the top down um sometimes sometimes not i mean if you take a look um yeah probably netflix is a good example but like if it's if if the founder is still there uh and still leading the company Corporate culture uh, can, can often follow the leader's sort of um, personality traits and style. And I think we saw this with Uber. I mean, when they had Travis Kalanick as their chief executive, uh, you know, he was a, a hard partier and womanizer kind of guy. And he broke a lot of rules, and so did the company. I mean, it really sort of went through the entire company. Vice is another example um, of, a, of a corporate culture like that. Um, so it, do, it does fascinate me sort of how they're, how they're formed. And I wish there was a way to measure this, because for sure, when you are applying for a job, and if someone offers you a job, there's no way for you to know what that's going to be like, what that fit's going to be like. It could be your dream job, but things like, do you have an office or not? Do they supply you with a laptop or not? Are your colleagues cool or not? Is your boss easy to work with or not? Is the cheap like, there's a long list of things to a work day. Um, and a lot of these are really important. And a lot of them never show up in the consideration because there's no way to measure them.
2: Yeah, you're, you're, yeah, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. And, you know, one thing that I I thought was interesting about this article is that Hastings doesn't deny any of this stuff, right? He sort of proudly, proudly states, no, no, this is, this is. How we roll, take it, or take it or leave it, right? Um, and he sort of even addresses this idea. this was one of the interesting quotes I thought he was talking about, human society has developed where we're polite and indirect, partly to avoid having wars. And so those influences are very strong in us of not saying what we're really thinking, but we're not trying to do pain minimization. We're trying to do growth maximization. Mm -hmm. Right. So, you know, basically saying, yeah, tough love, take it, take it or leave it. That's how we roll. Um, But yeah, I mean, to, to your point that, that cultural element, I mean, it's integral to the growth of, of a company and success of a company. It's always something I ask clients, you know, when I'm asked to review an employment agreement, you know, I ask them, I said, well, what can you tell me about the workplace culture? Right. Because I think one of the things that's really interesting about this idea is that when you're working for a company, you can sort of get sucked into this, you know, that reality distortion field where it just becomes your sort of normal day to day. And, you know, I I like to use the analogy of a family in this context, everybody growing up, you have your family and you think that your family is sort of normal and you assume that other families function largely the same way and have the same sort of practices and eat the same food and have the same, you know, political or cultural proclivities. And then as you sort of get older, you realize that that's not really the case at all. And workplace cultures can kind of function the same way when you're in the midst of it with a company. You know, you can kind of get sucked into the sense that you just sort of assume that what's going on on a day to day basis is normal. And it might be but it also may be terribly, terribly toxic um, or just, you know, the sort of place that you really, really shouldn't be working in.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I want to go through some of the things that you mentioned too uh, about the, um, the Netflix example Um, constant feedback uh, was one of the things you mentioned. I actually think this is important, but at the same time, like I personally really dislike this Um, and I, I think I'm must be wired differently because I've always thought that people kind of want to be left alone to do their work. And then if there's a problem, or if there's some coaching required, that that's when you would get the feedback when it's when there's something to sort of coach you up on or or, or, or to redirect you in some way. Um, Right. But I've realized, you know, since I've become a manager, like I I kind of let go of my team to do their own thing. um, And then find out that actually, they're kind of, not recently this hasn't happened, but then they're not getting enough uh, feedback from me. Uh, And that's something that they feel like they need. uh, And that helps them sort of feel a little bit more calm, less anxious, things like that. Um, So this is one of those things where for sure, like we all process information differently and operate comfortably in different kinds of environments Um, and don't assume sort of the way that you work is the way that other people would like to work or the way that you would like to work is the way other people would like to work Um, because they are they are quite different and this is why there's such a challenge to try and bring all kinds of different people together for sort of one common goal.
2: Yeah and I think you know to your to your point I think this is really where businesses need to take some some ownership and have some agency about the type of culture that they're promoting, and you know I, I think it's really really important. And I th- and I thought the one thing that I that I liked um, reading this article um, about about Netflix is that you know Hastings tells it like it is. This is our workplace culture. Um, this is how we operate. And if, if you don't like that, well, presumably you're not going to apply for a job at Netflix. And frankly, I wish more companies were honest about this because part of the problem, you see this more so in larger companies, is that the individual that's put forth to recruit the top talent. And I don't mean, you know, an external recruiter. I mean, you know, a senior HR representative or, uh, you know, a senior rep at the company that is is sort of put forth to interview prospective candidates. Those individuals rarely, not all the time, but those individuals are rarely reflective of the workplace culture. And therefore, it can be really misleading when you're going in as a candidate and you sit down, and you have this fantastic interview Um, with this senior HR rep, and then maybe you go back for a second interview and you have another fantastic interview with a senior manager and you think, wow, I really get these people and they seem fantastic. This really seems like the place for me. And then of course, two weeks into work, um, it's awful. You hate it nobody's, you know, the the idea of the the workplace culture and what you thought it was going to be is completely removed from, from the reality. I think in these circumstances, nobody wins in that context. Mm -hmm. That's not in the best interest of the employer. And it's certainly not in the best interest of, of the employee.
1: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I think too, another thing to keep in mind here is probation periods. Like I, I remember in the past, you know, someone was hired and given the job uh, and they go through a probation period, but it's kind of a formality, like un- unless they really screw up uh, or there's some sort of fireable offense. It- usually it's kind of an automatic. OK, yeah, they're on staff now. But I have noticed a change in, in in the recent even just two years. There is a lot more taking that probation period seriously from both sides, the the, the employee and the employer, because you can back out uh, before things become permanent and much more complex um, and so I, I kind of feel like that's a, a good thing. I know a lot of people will say it's it's not, but if the company doesn't really want you there, then then your experience isn't going to be very good anyway. So I mean, it should it should kind of go both ways. Um, I think on on that point. Yeah, I'm kind of a, of
2: two minds on the, the probationary period. Uh, you're absolutely right. It's a fantastic tool for. Employers, um, and and from a legal perspective, and again, these things differ from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. But you know, most places in in Canada, when you terminate an employee during a probationary period, you don't have to pay them anything. There are no severance or termination right. entitlements. Um, so you know, you really want to keep a keen eye during that probationary period to see if there are any signs to suggest that this really, really isn't going to work out. And if not, then yeah, you absolutely should pull the trigger. Within that probationary period before it becomes a bigger problem. Now, you know, the flip side of that coin is, you know, if I'm meeting with um, a more senior individual that's looking to accept a position and I go through an employment agreement and I see, you know a six month probationary period for a senior level job where, you know, it's like a six figure salary with bonus entitlements and stock options and these sorts of things. Well, generally speaking, you know, my argument um, to that employee is, well, no, no, you should push for the removal of that probationary period for the simple reason that if you're of that senior caliber, presumably you're leaving or have recently left you know, secure employment at, at a senior level position. So you're taking a pretty big risk in leaving that job and going to this new company, not all the time, but a lot of the time. And there should be some, some guarantee on on your end that the employer is prepared to put something on the table in case the relationship does sour within those first 6 months such that you're walking out the door with something in your pocket as opposed to an employer saying hey it didn't work out we're letting you go during the probationary period
1: that's one example but what happens if the employee walks out before should there be some sort of compensation or or something to the employer because i mean depending on what happens one side loses here right Um, and I, I, that's why I feel like the probation period is good because it's fair to both sides, you know, either side can walk away in general without, um, you know, a, a punishment or a fine or a severance or anything sort of paid out. So there's that sort of window, um, an out clause almost, um, but I, but I think it. there's definitely some downsides to it. The other thing I wanted to mention that you talked about, though was the interviews with the executives, the senior executives. Um, I mean, obviously it really depends on what level or what status a person is in, in, in the company. But I mean, I'm seeing a lot now, at least in Hong Kong, multiple interviews. And, and even with people who would be under uh, a person uh, or, or same level, like a, a, a big cross-section of staff. Um, and I've, I didn't see a lot of like even when I moved to Hong Kong probably, you know, 12 years ago or so, I didn't see a ton of this. But now it's almost I mean, a sure thing. You're going to meet five or six or seven people over the course of a few weeks to so they can all get an idea of who you are and you can get to know who they are. And oftentimes a lot of different things come out in conversations when you're talking to different people. Um, And so that stuff can all be sort of compiled on the company side and go, here's the different perspectives of this person. And they also get an idea of what sort of p- people they're going to be working with, you know, the prospective employee. Um, so that's another thing, too. But but that takes time. That takes effort. Like, you can't – it's very difficult to mobilize five, six, seven, eight people every time there's a job opening. Um, I mean, we're doing that in, in the company that I work for now, and I know that it's done elsewhere, but it's still – Difficult. And personally, I, I don't like the recruitment process at all from a manager's perspective because it is so time consuming because the minute somebody resigns, first thing is job description, HR, get it posted, get resumes, sort through, sift, you know, schedule interviews and writing tests or whatever it might be, you know, go through the finalists. And then, you know, maybe a month two, two months later, they're hired and then you start the training period. So it's, yeah. it's it's much easier <laughs> to keep somebody than than do go through all of this other stuff. And when you said that there was a keeper test, like, would you fight hard to keep this employee? I mean, there's probably cases where maybe people would not fight hard to keep that employee, but the trade off is worth it. Like, is this employee? Maybe they're not as good as you, you expect them to be. Uh, but is it worth keeping them so you can avoid this months long process of recruitment and time and energy and effort? And that's something they have to consider.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, all really, really, really great points. But, and this also goes back to the point I made earlier though, of, of you know, be authentic in terms of um, describing your workplace culture as best you can. Right. Because this just sort of helps ensure that these sorts of scenarios don't occur because you're right. The last thing you want is you invest all this time and energy through the recruitment process, the hiring process, the training process for, you know, a relationship to not work out, be it, you know, you have to let that employee go or that employee, you know, ultimately, ultimately quits. So why would you misrepresent the sort of cultural, you know, the, the workplace culture of the company. I mean, be, be honest and straight up. It's just going to help ensure that you don't, um, you know, there isn't any miscommunication or misunderstanding somewhere down the road, because it does, it costs the employer time, costs the employer money, and it costs the employee money as well in time. And it doesn't do any wonders for that business's reputation. If you routinely have employees departing the company within their, their first year of service.
1: But have you come across many who purposely misrepresent? Because like I know oftentimes it's it's not intentional. Like they they pick two or three people to interview you and it's not with a mind of sort of giving you exposure to the company culture and trying to make sure that, that the representation is accurate. It's just kind of by accident almost. Because the the employee doesn't have the time or the employer doesn't have the time to really give them a full picture of what's going on. And so I don't find it malicious in that way, sort of the way you're describing, but I mean, maybe, maybe employers do do that. I'm just not sure.
2: No, I, I, and, and I'm not, I'm not suggesting it is malicious. Um, I don't think that, I'm sure that does happen. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is, you know, the employer should do everything that they can to ensure that they're representing the company in an authentic way, such that those misrepresentations, be them deliberate or accidental, inadvertent, what have you, um, that they just they don't exist. But, you know, this isn't just the employer's obligation, Cam. Like the employee has to have some agency here, too. Right. And, you know, I I think as such, employees should dig a bit deeper before committing to a new job. Right. I mean, look into the company. What's what's the turnover rate like, for example, if you can't find an employee within the company on on LinkedIn, who's been there for longer than a year, that's probably a bad sign. Um, You know, other things you can look for companies who are sort of pushing a. A rebrand or some other significant change that that recently occurred across the company. Generally, that's because um, you know there's been an exodus at the company or some sort of fundamental issue that's occurred that that may have prompted that. Not again, not all the time, but certainly sometimes. Um, you know, and compensation. This is something you can look at as well. You know, if if one company is offering significantly more from a comp package than, you know, similarly situated positions at other companies. Ask yourself why. I mean, maybe, you know, that may not be a bad thing, but... it would certainly give me cause to pause and think, well, you know, what's the story there? Why are they paying 30% more than everybody else who does the same work? Um, and also, as you pointed out earlier, speak to junior employees, you know, whenever possible before accepting a position. You know, if you go for an interview and you meet with an HR rep, you come back for a second interview and you meet with, uh, you know, a senior executive, ask the company, can I come back in? Can I, you know, I'd like to even just wander the halls, see if you can speak with anybody else or see if you can contact somebody else and obviously ask for permission before doing this, but do your due diligence as an employee. And that simply ensures that that miscommunication or, you know, that, that disconnect in terms of what your expectations are with the company from a culture perspective, um, that you don't, you don't run into these sorts of situations.
1: I just want to bring up one funny story that's not really related to this, um but it, I came across. I interviewed a person for a uh job last week. Uh and you know, it was interesting because the uh person asked me a question that I'd never ever received before. And it kind of caught me off guard a little bit. And I don't know if this has happened to you or not. Um but the question was after the after we had talked for 45 minutes or so, um she said how did this interview go? How would you assess how I handled this interview and mm. what did I do well and what did I not do well? <laughs> and how would you answer that Ewan? Uh,
2: I don't know. I was, I was just sort of quickly scanning through my brain cause you know, I've conducted, I don't even know how many articling student interviews over the years Probably, probably upwards of a hundred, possibly more. Um, and I've certainly fielded some interesting questions, but I don't know that I've ever had to field that question during or immediately following the conclusion of the interview. I have no idea how I would answer that.
1: You know, I I thought about it, uh, and then I thought, you know, I'm gonna. Actually, I was kind of thinking as I was acting. So, or sorry, as I was as I was talking to him or to her rather, and I said. Uh, you know, I, I I walked through some of the strong answers I thought the person gave. Um, and then I did get to a point where I said, but, you know, when I asked you this and this and this, um, you know, your, your take on that probably was a bit questionable. <laughs> you know, and I, I explained why I said, like, here, here, here's why I'm saying this. Um, and she seemed appreciative. And and that was that. But in a way, I actually felt better about it after that, because. It was fully transparent. I didn't criticize the person. I didn't say, you're, you're not going to get the job. I, you know, I didn't do anything. Like I just gave her an honest assessment. Um, and I don't know why that would make me feel good, actually, because it's not I'm not the one applying for the job. Maybe it's just the fact that it is transparent and it's open. And, and when you do that, you do kind of sort of a stronger conversation, stronger bond that way.
2: Yeah, I, I mean, I do think you took the right approach in being honest. Um, and, and I think that there is, if, if somebody's going to ask that question, then you owe it and you're taking the time to interview them as a potential candidate, you owe it to them to be straight and give them an honest answer. If for no other reason, then it's just, you know, the humane thing to do and it enables them to improve and become a stronger candidate for any subsequent positions that they've applied for. And you just, in, in telling the story, you reminded me of a, of a student that I interviewed, um, a couple of years ago now, this is probably two or three years ago. And he came in and he, he was clearly, this individual was very, very confident and he was a very smart guy. Um, he was also very, very arrogant throughout the course of the interview. He would interrupt um, myself and, and, and a few of the other lawyers who were interviewing him mid sentence. Um, and ultimately he sent me a similar email but it was after the fact, Cam, and said, you know, I'd like to know. I really want to work there. I'd like to know how I did. Um, please let me know. And and I, I sat down with one of my colleagues, and she and I thought about how to answer answer his email. And we concluded, much as you did, that, well, you know what? We should be straight with this guy. And um, it turns out that not only was he rude to us, but more importantly, he was rude to our two receptionists mm. when he came into the office mm. and those are the sorts of things that are very very telling you know if you you've already made a determination that these individuals aren't important and are unworthy of your kindness your consideration and just decency and that to me automatic um, rejection is Absolutely. It is, I mean, you were you, you done. The, the reality is, is that, you know, he was actually done before he even stepped into the interview. He just didn't realize it. But, um, you know, we always would ask any of the any of the receptionists, any of the staff that had any contact with the um, prospective articling students over the course of the interviews, and you'd be shocked the frequency with which we would get feedback from, um, from staff saying, well, this individual was really rude or uh, standoffish or arrogant or any number of these things operating under some assumption that these individuals don't matter. When, you know, as anyone will tell you at any firm, um, law firm, and any business really for that matter, that you're only as good as, as the staff working around you. And, you know, it, you do not disrespect the staff. You know, as a lawyer, your practice functions and stays afloat because of great assistance and great support workers that help you. So for some prospective candidate to come in and treat them with anything other other than total respect and decency was, you know, I mean, he he was done. So we, we said as much. We wrote back to him and were very, very straight with him. And to mm-hmm. his credit, he wrote back and said, oh, thank you very much. I appreciate that. And I'm sorry. And I'll work at that going forward. So, you know, hopefully, he does mm-hmm. and something good comes out of it
1: yeah as you're describing that saying that you they should treat the um assistants with respect just treat everyone with respect this is a very basic life lesson uh it doesn't matter who they are or wh- what job they're in um i wanted to say one more thing here you and also just because it's sort of related to the topic we're talking about um and that is sort of training of of staff because this comes up a lot um and i've heard uh the argument sort of from hr that if 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 there's too extensive training inside companies. You you could be training staff on using company resources only for them to resign and move on uh, to another company. And there was a, a, a quote, I can't remember where this came from, um, but I, it's I, it's been in my head ever since I heard it, and it is along these lines. Um, it said that having employees be trained, if you spend time and effort training people and they leave, that is still better than if you don't train them and they stay, which I think is very, very mm. true because at the end of the day, you still want the best talent and there's always others coming. Usually it really depends on what sector you're in, I guess. But um, I, I do think that is important. If people move on in a way, like I I hope we can look at that in a little bit of a different way, especially if they've done a lot already at the company and things like that and are moving on, it should kind of be a point of pride uh, to some degree as if they're graduating almost.
2: Yeah, look, I mean employees are going to talk, right? Whether they stay or whether they leave, expect that they're going to talk. So why not do everything you can to promote a healthy and good workplace culture?
1: And even if they if they yeah, even if they don't know someone from that company, everyone goes on Glassdoor now. You go on there, you can see exactly what people in the company you are applying to get paid. You can see what employees are saying about the place. You can even look up managers if people have left comments. Like It's all transparent out there. And we often get people coming in who have already looked at Glassdoor. Uh, it's quite, it's, uh, when I was at the exchange, you know, we had young people coming in to talk about the website cause I was head of the digital department there. Um, and then, you know, they had read stuff on glass door and brought it to me. And I thought, wow, that's, that's, that's impressive.
2: Huh? Yeah, that is, that is very interesting. Well, and also, I mean, it, it and again, gives a, gr- a great example of you've got to practice what you preach, right. As, as an employer, this is really, really important. Don't, you know, don't promote, a particular workplace culture, if that's completely disconnected from reality. And you and I have actually talked about this very specific thing over the last few weeks around, you know, some of the the Twitter statements and press releases that companies have made in terms of, you know, Black Lives Matter or promoting diversity within their companies. I mean, don't do that. If it's not reflective of your actual workplace culture, I mean, you know, if you're a small company of predominantly middle aged white men and you're issuing edicts about how you, you know, you support diversity in your in your company, in your workforce and in your policies and procedures. Well, you know, it, it doesn't really add up. So practice what you preach, just be as authentic and as honest as a business as you can um, and and hopefully the top talent will come along with it.
0: Show your support to the PR and Law Podcast by making a one-time donation or setting up a subscription with us on Patreon. Every little bit helps us keep the lights on and bring the show to you each week. If you'd like to chip in, please visit PRandLawPodcast.com. That's PRandLawPodcast.com. Click support the show. Thanks for helping us out.
1: So we've had a few new employees recently uh, at the company. And um, obviously, when someone new comes in, there is a training period and some coaching uh, involved. Um, And I had a conversation with with um, one colleague just about press releases. And actually, it made me think about what are some basics in PR that are good to help you help guide you basically uh, in your career? And there's some really simple lessons here. I'm almost calling it like media relations 101 or foundational PR, uh, because I've come up with basically five things. I thought, like, what would I say to somebody who wanted to do their own communications and didn't have any training at all? Um, so these are sort of off the top of my head. Um, I, I did read one article that gave me one of these ideas. The other four all directly from me. Um, and the first one, never repeat an allegation. And I'm surprised we still see this. I still see this in a lot of companies' communications where if they're accused of something that is negative or has negative connotations, they repeat and say, I did not do X. And I think the most famous example of this was from 1973, and I am going to play it and you can tell me what you think.
0: And I want to say this to the television audience. I made my mistakes. But in all of my years of public life, I have never profited, never profited from public service. I've earned every cent. And in all of my years of public life,
1: I have never obstructed justice. And I think, too, that I can say that in my years of public life, that I welcome this kind of examination because people have got to know whether or not their president is a crook Well, I'm not a crook. I've earned everything I've got. President, I'm not a crook. That (laughs) line has gone down in history, because what would a crook say if they were asked if they're a crook? They would say, I'm not a crook. You become suspicious when somebody uses that term in that context. Um, And it was was a really bad look. But I still see this come up a lot, even in the communications industry, this sort of thing, uh, to deal with a problem. Uh, There's one other example of this as well. So the, the Nixon examples from 1973, obviously that was over Watergate. Here's one that I'm sure our listeners are familiar with as well. But I want to say one thing to the American people. I want you to listen to me. I'm going to say this again. I did not have
2: sexual relations with that woman, Ms. Lewinsky. I never
1: told anybody to lie. Not a single time. Never. These allegations are false and I need to go back to work for the American people. Thank you. Now, the end of that was good. These allegations are false. That's a, that's a, that's a great thing to say. And, and I, I do want to say that there are, are some exceptions to this occasionally uh, depending on what they are, especially if, I mean, I mean, if 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 you really are innocent, um, then you can emphasize that to some degree. And the way that President Clinton said this at the time, he was emphasizing the allegation and how preposterous it was to him. Still not advisable. Um, but if he had been innocent, it would have been a much more powerful message. Uh, but we know now that he was lying when he said that. And that hurts a lot.
2: Yeah. Well, it's funny. I thought that's where you were going with the first example. I didn't realize you're going all the way back to Nixon. I just assumed you were going straight to Clinton. And again, you know, the thing that, and I, I don't want to get too off track here, Cam, because I think these are, these are really, really good, good points and I want to, I don't want to disrupt your flow. Sorry about (laughs) that just for a second. You know, the thing that always jars me when I hear that Clinton quote is, you know, the I the dismissiveness of that woman, right? Yeah. I did not have yeah. sexual relations with that woman. Yeah. And then it's like his presidential brain sort of reactivates and he quickly says, Miss Lewinsky. Um, but of course, you know, the damage was done. Never mind the repeating of the allegations, the idea that he is so dismissive of this woman, that woman, um, that he doesn't even mention her by name before saying that woman. Um, and it, it's interesting. I think if we were, if we were to go through something like that today, um, yeah, oh, maybe, not, maybe, not, maybe not, maybe not today um, for obvious reasons, but uh, it it is, it is very interesting in hindsight to, to listen to that.
1: Yeah. And I think the term that woman was intentional. I mean, because he's, he's, basically saying i'm the president of the united states and you're talking about an intern like there's no there's no way that this sort of thing can happen Uh, it's a way to sort of emphasize your status and the and the differences in status between between both of them but you're right that that could not be not be said today so i mean always when there's some sort of a negative allegation you're writing a statement you're writing a press release don't repeat the allegation talk about what you is instead of saying what you aren't or what you didn't do talk about who you are and what you did do so that's Point one, point two. This also is like a, a, a misconception, I think. Never say no comment. It's it's absolutely, it's a, been a rule in every place I've ever worked, with every agency I've ever, like nobody has ever said you should say no comment. But I think it came up in the movies or something. I'm not sure why. But if you say no comment, it basically means you're hiding something. Like people are going to think, oh, he's guilty. And it's just kind of natural to assume that because it's become very um, almost like you've gotten caught doing something. So you don't want to comment on it. And there's other ways to do this um, because sometimes there are legitimate circumstances where a reporter is asking you a question and you, you truly cannot comment on it. But even saying, I can't comment on it because there's an ongoing case or I can't talk about this today, but I'm going to have more information for you blah, blah, blah tomorrow or one that's often used is we decline to comment that can often appear in print. So instead of saying no comment, it looks like the reporter called you up and you just said no comment and hung up the phone. But, but if you decline to comment, it's a little softer and it does mean that you responded. The reporter clearly got a hold of you and you, you, you responded. And that's a little bit more positive um, because at least it means that it was considered uh, and then the decision was made for some reason not to do it. But I think the connotations around the term no comment are, are really awful.
2: Right. So, you know, that old adage of if you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all Um, can be can be qualified that sometimes there is a way to say nothing at all uh, that is better or more appropriate than simply, quote unquote, no comment.
1: Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, And then, um, I mean, another time that you could maybe do this is uh, oftentimes companies get uh, questions about personnel issues, Uh, you know, if an executive leaves or even if just there was some sort of incident. um, It is common if if you have a policy that you can't speak on some subject, that's also okay if you specify that. So, you know, we don't comment on personnel matters is a common one or we don't comment on media speculation um, is another one. I think these are, are, are reasonable. Um, and I think that, that, that they're sort of a little more more acceptable, I think, to the journalist and to, and to the reader.
2: Hmm, that's an interesting one. Um, we, we've seen a lot of companies over the last, and really this has sort of been a, a shift in probably the last 10 years that have moved to a policy of we don't write reference letters. Right. So, you know, one of the things that typically shows up in a demand letter, um, drafted by a lawyer who represents a terminated employee, you know, in addition to requests for, you know, we want severance and we want this and we want bonus payments and monies towards legals, is a request for a positive letter of reference. And a lot of employers are now moving towards a, you know, and we'll give you a quote unquote confirmation of employment letter. So basically it's a letter that says, you know, so-and-so was hired on such and such a date, occupied such and such a position and was, you know, with us for X number of years, the end, mm-hmm. right? Something that is just sort of yep, are common, common, um, common right? and has no subjective uh, context whatsoever. Mm-hmm. And I think this is smart, right? Because it, it can, can protect employers from any sort of liability down the road should you know they give some sort of glowing reference for some terrible terrible employee
1: well that to me is unethical nobody should do that i mean if if the employee is was not good and they ask you for a reference letter a decline or b you can put in language that holds back on the praise too like the, there's there's ways to sort of manage that but if 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 if, if a person asks for a recommendation letter and they were not a good employee and the, the manager writes a positive letter that's very unethical to me um, that, that, that definitely shouldn't, shouldn't happen. Um, well,
2: again, yes. just opening a door that you don't need to open. Yeah. Why, why even bother? Right. And I think that's where the confirmation of employment, um, is, is great. And this is sort of, you know, like you're qualified, no comment. You simply state, this is the position that they held. <laughs> this is what they did. This is how long they were here and that's it. That's all we're going to say. And that's all we need to say.
1: Yeah. The other thing too, on not commenting because of a policy, you really have to make sure that that's a consistent policy too. Because you will be given some leeway if you say we don't comment on personnel matters or we don't comment on media speculation. But if you did, if you comment on media speculation the next week or, or some other personnel issue that you do talk about, that blows your entire defense here. Um, so it does have to be consistently applied if this does become a become a policy. Yeah, yeah, you're you're absolutely
2: right. And again, this is one of those things. Once again, where employees talk, right? And particularly with large companies where we have mass layoffs, if you're laying off, uh, you know, 100 employees in in one fell swoop, and you're offering letters of reference to some of them, but not all of them. Rest assured, you know, the vast majority of those employees are going to quickly learn that letters of references were provided in some contexts and not in others. So, yeah, keep the policy specific and consistent.
1: Number three, assume it's on the record. Um, I think this is different in different parts of the world. Um, I think in general, um, when reporters say this is not on the record or, um, you know, we won't attribute this to anybody, um, that's generally okay. I guess I should assume that not everyone knows sort of how this works. But usually reporters will call up a company or a contact or somebody like that and say they want to talk about a subject. Um, and then you can say, "Is this on record or on background?" Uh, that sort of thing. And if if you agree to give them a statement, who is it attributable to? So, do we say that this is from, you know, a, a Coca Cola spokesperson, um, or do we say, you know, a person close to Coca Cola? You know, these sorts of terms can be discussed and worked out um, in that kind of call. And then make sure that you know what is on the record and what's off the record. But if it's off the record, don't assume that everything you say there, it won't come out. It's you're playing with fire. If you do that, there's one example when I got my very first PR job, this was back in 2003, uh, at the provincial government, BC provincial government in Canada. And it was my first time dealing with this because I had a reporter call me up, uh, from Vancouver and there was some government land that we were going to expropriate. Uh, take over basically and uh the reporter called me up and said like you know uh, these homeowners are very concerned this is big you're going to take take their land away and we had a statement we said you know we're going to be we're, we're going to be compensating them it's above market value uh we had some good lines and then we finished and he said okay so it sounds like everything's okay and i said yep it's just a bunch of needless worrying well guess what showed up in the article <laughs> <laughs> And again, that makes the government look horrible. It makes it made us look like we were not taking their concerns seriously. Like they're looking at having their land and their home taken away, and then the government says it's, it's a bunch of needless worrying. <laughs> Assume it's on the record. Be very careful anytime you're you're interacting with reporters.
2: Cam, I mean, this is you know not exactly what you're talking about, but just something that that kind of uh, occurred to me. We see a lot of reports in the news of you know unnamed sources unnamed sources and people always attack the credibility of those pieces when they're coming from unnamed sources, I mean, how do you how do you legitimize or try to legitimize a story like that as a as a journalist? Or how do companies deal with that in terms of you know when they want to push back and say, "Well, hey, it's just unnamed sources." What do you you know? What's your sort of position on the unnamed well, sources bit
1: in stories? It's, it's it's a policy decision made by different publications. I think if you look at the New York Times, The Atlantic, things like that, you you won't see that very often. Um, because it, it oftentimes, if a if a person if a person doesn't can't or if a person does not put their name to it, th- then obviously you have um, reason for skepticism um, about what they're saying. Now, sometimes they may end up, um, you know, if they give their name there in personal, there's some sort of risk to themselves. Um, that has to be discussed uh, with the reporter as well, because there are times. So here's the thing. Basically, the answer is no, it should not be done ever, unnamed sources. If you've got – I mean, a source – actually, I'm, I'm thinking it because sometimes sources give you a tip, and that's something different, and that's okay. But if, if, you're, if you're putting something attributable, like if a, a source could be somebody who says, like, I saw something on the road, right? So that person you don't need to identify who m- might have witnessed a crime or something like that. But, but if, you're, if, if you're the one giving information – that is credible, and that is going into publication, then you absolutely should be identified. If not, there has to be a reason in the article why. So uh, I think we saw this a little bit with the uh, op-ed in the the New York Times a couple of years ago from a staffer inside the Trump White House. That was, I mean, the New York Times was blasted for that because it was was a column written by nobody-knows, and yet they gave them column space in the New York Times. So when that happens uh, in the New York Times case, then they did verify the person's identity. So so they felt comfortable with it and could could say that they're OK. And because the New York Times is trusted that that, that that's fine. Um, but in general, yeah, it, it, it should be a, a no go unless there's a good reason. And that good reason should be shared with the audience so they also understand. Okay. Yeah.
2: That, that, that's helpful because, you know, I see this all the time and I've always kind of been curious from, from uh, a journalist or PR perspective, what the, what the take is on that because yeah, it does sort of give rise to, well, if this is legitimate, then why aren't these individuals going on the record? Um, And it it does seem to me to sort of impact the credibility um, of, of the piece and the reliability of, you know, whoever the sources are from that piece.
1: Yep. I can see times moving along here. I'll I'll do the last two quickly. So number four is press release. This is not something that that I think uh, is kind of a rule for PR, but it's one that I have found useful when people write press releases um, because there's no sort of set standard. It can go a number of different ways, but very very early on in my career, uh, somebody told me that the first paragraph should contain the who and the what and the benefit. So who will do something what is, what is it they will do and what's the benefit? And the benefit is really key there. So again, if you're in the government, you're saying, um, you know, the, the Ministry of Transportation will put up brand new sort of wine tour sign, signs on the highway. And the benefit is increased awareness and hopefully sort of economic stimulation in a wine region. So you put that all together. So it's really clear at the top. Because that can clarify your own thinking, but it also helps to clarify the reporter's thinking or whoever's picking up on it. So the who, the what, and the benefit.
2: Hmm. Point first writing.
1: Yes. All right, and then uh, the last one I, I think is is straightforward but often forgotten, and this is know your messages. Know your messages. So again, a peek behind the scenes. If there's if there's going to be a press conference, or there's going to be an interview with a high level journalist, or or just a quick media scrum, you know, where cameras come and put them in somebody's face and ask them questions, before you do that as a spokesperson, or get one of your executives, or politicians, or whoever it might be. Make sure that everybody knows the messages well. So we would put together FAQs, and these are often fun to do. This is one of the favorite things I have to do in communications. You know, you have a difficult issue, and you start thinking about what questions will the reporters ask. Like, what are the most difficult things that they could say to us or ask? And then come up with answers. Write down what what you think you should say. This often goes through many revisions, but once they're finalized, know those forwards and backwards, inside and out, because they will help you, especially when you're under pressure. And I'm going back to point number one. If there's an allegation against you, you don't want to start dwelling on that question and that answer. You want to immediately pivot to something more positive. And that's going to come from the messages that you've remembered from your FAQ. So it's very, very important.
2: Yeah. I mean, that strikes me as a really difficult task. And I get it. That's how you get the job. And that's why people are paid the big bucks um, to be the sort of face of a company to, to be the ones to issue these statements or present uh, to, to reporters. But man, that, that strikes me as really, really, really stressful, right? I mean, you've given, you've put together this FAQ and the, and the prospective answers, um, But man, to try and remember them, to internalize them such that you can you can speak to them on point, which, you know, and I imagine the timelines on these things are often very, very short. Right. Where the turnaround is maybe an hour before you've got to face reporters on these issues. I mean, I don't know how people do that. That's really tough.
1: So, I mean, yes and no. I mean, if somebody handed you a uh, Department of Agriculture faq on a topic yes that would be almost impossible right but ideally you already know the business you're already inside so the the subject matter is not new and oftentimes the executives already know some of the answers because they're questions that come up in public a lot um and then the other thing is it's not about memorizing line by line it's really just about the concepts like when you're asked about a talk about b and c and um you know the the it's, it's more just sort of the triggers in your head about how you should sort of direct a conversation uh, and then go from there. Good to know. I'll try and keep that in mind too.
0: Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Check this out. Whoa. Hey, check this out. No, no, wait, wait. Oh, check it out. Check it out. I want you to check this out. On the PR in Law Podcast.
1: All right. What have you got this week, Doc?
2: Yeah, I'm I'm gonna be very brief about this one because I don't want to give away too many details. It's just an article people should read. This is a, a story I came across in uh, The Cut, and the I'll just read the title, Cam: uh, The Eco Yogi Slum Lords of Brooklyn how did a couple who built an empire of yoga studios and homes with living walls end up as pandemic villains? Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a really, really fascinating long, long, long form article in the cut. Um, I highly recommend people check it out. Uh, it's sort of, in many ways, it actually speaks to a lot of what we're talking about today, where, um, you have a business that puts forth a particular brand or particular cultural image that is actually completely contrary to reality and what they're doing on the ground. Um, and this article addresses a lot of that hypocrisy in, in sort of, you know, stand up, progressive liberals in terms of perception and public persona and philanthropic work that they do, that they do. And yet, um, when you, when you sort of strip back the veneer, you realize that there's just a really, really dark underbelly that is entirely contrary to that image. Really great piece. Um, Check it out. We'll put it in the show notes.
1: Yeah, definitely send that over. That sounds fascinating. Uh, I'll definitely read that. Um, the one thing I wanted to mention today—it's—it's—you uh, know—last week we had so many sort of uh, negative articles and things like that, negative topics to talk about. So this is the other other side. A friend of mine sent me a link to a website called Poolside FM, and I left it there. I didn't even know what it was, and then I clicked it. and It took me to a browser window with an MS DOS screen, black with kind of the blinking cursor. And the cursor was counting down from five to one. And then it launched the Macintosh home screen from the 1980s. And on the home (laughs) screen were a couple of apps. One is music, one is video, one is about. And if you click music, uh, it actually pops up a little music player again from the Mac way back when. And it plays songs from SoundCloud. Oftentimes, these are artists that are not well-known, um, but it's very uh, happy, it's very positive, the music's kind of upbeat, um, and it's original, and it's that's all it does. Oh, it plays videos as well. So while you're listening to these, it plays random videos from the 80s and 90s, so it looks like VHS format, um, and, and there's, there's no match between the music and the video, it's just sort of a trip down, it's sort of like nostalgia in a way, for simpler times. And the music's great. I, I found the music to be absolutely awesome. Um, I, I've never heard any of it before, but I've been leaving it on recently just because I found it cool to listen to. They kind of make you feel like you're sitting by a poolside um, when you're when you're doing this. So it was, I guess it came out uh, first in 2014 um, and it was somewhat popular then, but it was just recently relaunched um, with this sort of new UI. And I think um, it's so simple yet it just hits the right spot. And I think it's it's great.
2: Wow. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely interested in checking this out. Were there any, um, pure moods volume one track scam that you recall <laughs> listening to? Or, or
1: big shiny tunes three, uh, big yeah. shiny tunes. <laughs> um, no, the music is current. The music is current. It's everything else. That ah, okay. Is, uh, is, <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's, so it's
2: all new music, but, yeah. but it's sort of cool kind of obscure independent, artists. under the yep. radar SoundCloud artists. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And I think it's like, there's some great cool. songs on there. I've already heard like, um, yeah, it's just, they've nailed it. They've nailed the nostalgia, the music, the UI, uh, the videos are great too. Just leaving them off. Like it's, 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 it's done a great job. So, um, I'll definitely put that in the show notes as well.
2: Wow, that sounds great. And I, it's always just wonderful whenever I hear about these sorts of um, applications that are trying to promote lesser known independent artists, right? Because I think that's always one of the problems with playlists you find on the major streaming services. They effectively sort of promote the same, you know, 5% of artists on their their total platform and sort of neglect the other 95% who are, who are trying to break through. So anything that sort of gives opportunity to those lesser known artists, I'm, uh, I'm all about supporting. Yeah, absolutely. Any closing thoughts this week, Ewan? Um, no, you know, just be safe people. You know, everybody's going back to work. Summer's over. Kids are going back to school, um, to all the parents out there stay strong. Um, you know, we're going to get through this. Stay connected with your communities as best you can. Stay connected with other parents. I know it's a really, really, really stressful time for parents right now. Um, A lot of them are really scared about sending their kids back to school. Um, We will get through this. We will get through this. So stay strong. Um, You know, send me a note if you want to chat. I'm happy to chat. Um, And, um, you know, we're going to be okay.
1: Very well said, Ewan. Uh, great way to end the show. All right. Well, thank you uh, so much for joining us uh, again today. Don't miss shows. Please subscribe to us uh, on your podcast app of choice, or you can subscribe to our YouTube or SoundCloud channels. Uh, And you can also follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And the account name is PR Law Podcast. That's all one word, PR Law Podcast. So you can go to facebook.com slash PR Law Podcast, instagram.com, blah, 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 et cetera, et cetera. So that's the easiest way to, uh, to get to us. Um, And again, don't forget to ask some questions. We're seeing some questions come in. It's great. I think we'll put them together for a segment sometime in the future uh, to go through those. So just um, tag us on social media with the hashtag PR Law Pod, and we will answer that in a future show. So for you and Christy, this is Cam McMurchie. We'll see you next week.
0: This has been the PR and Law Podcast with Cam McMurchie and Ewing and Christie. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with a friend or leave a review. You can also join us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook by following our account at PR Podcast. That's all one word, P-R-L-A-W
2: Podcast. Thanks for your support.